Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here on PRN.FM, the Progressive Radio Network, Mondays at 10 a.m. And I always have to pause because uh, 10 a.m. New York time, but we're totally global, right? There's no, uh, <laughs> there's not a local radio station with, uh, you know, reaching out over a couple hundred miles. Uh, we're on the Internet, which is totally global. I'm visionaries who talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality, and how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. Uh, and you can hear our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. So maybe around the halfway through the show, I'll go through some of our back shows you might want to catch. And uh, today I don't have a guest, but some of our future guests are going to be uh, lined up. Uh, one is uh, John David Ebert, who we had before. He's going to be talking about French post-structuralist thinkers, which, you know, what is that all about? He's really great at explaining that stuff. And it's kind of pertinent today because today I want to talk about uh, something related to that that we'll get to. Uh, one of our future scheduled guests is Socrates, and not the uh, ancient Greek, but a contemporary figure. And go online to Singularity One on One. And doesn't matter how you spell that, but you'll find his uh, his great shows. We'll talk about Socrates, uh, about what the singularity is, and what he's been doing on his podcasts. So that's some of some of what we have coming up. And uh, just an opening note. I go online this morning. I have my, I have my uh, browser set to Google for my homepage, and I see a uh, there a little graphic there of uh, a guy in a red shirt and a beard strapped into a motorized wheelchair with a breathing tube in his mouth. I said that looks familiar, and I tap on it, and sure enough, it's Ed Roberts, an old acquaintance. So. Uh, when you see this on Google this morning, do tap on it and check into Ed Roberts. Fascinating guy. Just a, <laughs> a brief uh, couple words about Ed. Ed, as a child, got polio, and he was paralyzed from the neck down. So those people, this is before Jonas Salk developed the Salk vaccine and hopefully pretty much eliminated polio at least from those countries that keep up. Sorry, Gary. <laughs> uh, but it seems that maybe some vaccines do work. But anyway, um, they can also be dangerous. You hear plenty about that on on uh, Progressive Radio Network. But Ed got polio, paralyzed from the neck down. And those people spend their lives in what was called an iron lung. They can't move, and they need this inside this tube, which increases and decreases pressure, to f they can't breathe. <laughs> it forces air in and, in and out of their lungs. And so Ed was in that condition as a teenager, and he decided to end his life. He says, this, this is not going to work. And then he said, he, he, could, well, he couldn't figure out how to do it because <laughs> he couldn't move. So then he said, you know what? I'm going to lead an ordinary life. And Ed went on to... Uh, get married, have a kid, get divorced, travel throughout the world. And 
He's a key instigator of the Americans with Disability Act. So when you're in front of a building and have that little ramp going up so you can go up two steps or you can go up the ramp, or you see that in a men's room there's a lower urinal, that's all due to Ed. <laughs> the idea of making the world accessible to people in wheelchairs um, probably would have happened anyway. It was a general movement. But Ed dedicated his life to promoting that. He won two MacArthur Awards, the, the Genius Award, <clears throat> organized throughout the world. And what he did was he was in a motorized wheelchair, and there was a breathing pump on the back of the chair. And he had a plastic tube, maybe two inches in diameter, that he would hold in his mouth, and it would uh, force air into his lungs. Uh, he couldn't, his, you know, his chest was paralyzed. He could move one finger, and with that he controlled the little joystick that would control his motorized wheelchair. And if he dropped that tube out of his mouth, he would be in trouble. <laughs> he could frog breathe for a while, uh, forcing air down his uh, throat. He could move his, his uh, head muscles, so he could, he could talk, he could move his mouth, he could move his eyes, and he could move one finger. So I know about this because he had several aides. He would had three or four people who lived with him, and they would get him out of bed and bathe him and strap him into his motorized wheelchair every morning. And when he traveled, he had only one aide, and for some time that was a nephew of mine, Mark. So when they came to New York, uh, Ed was traveling on business, they would visit us, and I remember once my, um, I was with someone giving a lecture at the New York Open Center, and Ed and Mark came late, and so everybody was there. It was a big audience, and I was in the audience, and the uh, <laughs> elevator door opens, and his wheelchair comes out, and between Ed's breathing and this pump that pumped the air sounded just like Darth Vader. <laughs> And a couple of people in the audience freaked out, but the lecturer says, hi, Ed, you know, <laughs> and he asked some questions and stuff. So he was a real cool guy and showed what um, some people can manage to do with uh, tremendous willpower, even though you, can, you can't get very much more disabled. Well, uh, Stephen Hawking can't even talk now, so that's, you know, he's even worse shape. And there was one point where I said, where, where's that? He's always, my nephew says, always taking his karate lesson. I said, what are you talking about? He can only move one finger. He says, do you ever get hit by a 600-pound motorized wheelchair? <laughs> so <clears throat> he uh, lived his life exuberantly. And again, if you uh, log on line, go to Google, the little graphic that sometimes changes with you know, things that the Google people sort of want to point us to. That's uh, Ed Roberts. So look him up. Terrific guy. So today, I want to talk about how we make ourselves as people. You know, what does it mean to be a human being? And I teach history of architecture of all cultures, I do a survey course of Western and some non-Western architecture with a team. And being with this team is terrific. We're all there 
at the lecture, 150 students, and we uh, take turns giving the lectures so that I, and many of the team are young people just getting their PhDs, and they then move on when they get full-time appointments at other schools, and then we get more. So it sort of keeps me in touch with the young scholarship in the field, which is terrific for me. And I also uh, do a course in non-Western architecture. And so cover a lot of different cultures and give a lot of thought about it, see what my colleagues are saying about it. And so I want to begin with observing that, uh, and we'll get to how these different cultures think of us as people, which is my point. But uh, I'm right now reading, I say reading, <laughs> how many people can still read a book, you know, cover to cover? Uh, oh, I've just about given up. But more and more books are available on audio. And so, you know, as soon as I see a reference in the, in the Times Book Review or somewhere else to a, a book I think might be interesting, I make a note and I check, is it available as an audio book? So right now I'm in the middle of At the Existential Cafe by Sarah Bakerwell. Bakewell, Sarah Bakewell, At the Existential Cafe, colon, Freedom, Being, and Apricot Cocktails with Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Albert Camus, Martin Heidegger, Merci... Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and others. So, uh, at the Existential Cafe, highly recommended. I think it's uh, a bestseller. I don't know if it's on the Times list, but it's doing pretty well on, on Amazon. And um, so I, just to orient you about me, I graduated high school and started my first year of college in 1959, which I think is important for people to know because it sort of orients you. You know, I, I noticed I was doing a tenure review for a colleague recently, and they had something interesting in their, uh, their, their PhD thesis was on an interesting topic. And it was about uh, basically does it make more sense for people to own their own house or to rent? And that's become a very hot topic since the housing mortgage crisis. And, and we were told before the crisis that, oh, you know, owning a home was a thing to do. It was the source of wealth for 90% of people. In other words, 90% of people in their old age will have a few dollars in their pension, uh, maybe negative in their credit card, but if they own a house and they finally paid off much of the mortgage, they have a chunk of wealth. And then comes the housing crisis, and millions of people are upside down, meaning they owe more money on their mortgage than they do uh, than the house is worth, and millions of people just you know left the keys on the on the uh, on the, on the table in the hall and walked away. You know, let the bank worry about this turkey. And then you think about it further. If you're a young automobile worker in Detroit, the last thing you want to do is own a house. What if your job evaporates, but there's now a job in Tennessee? 
as an automobile worker. Uh, lots of jobs in Tennessee, less and less jobs in Detroit, but you can't move because you own this house and you can't sell it because it's underwater. So does it make more sense for some people to rent rather than own a house at some stages in their life? That's what the guy's thesis was about. So I wanted to know how brilliant he was. Did you, I mean, everybody knows that now, but did you write this thesis before the mortgage crisis, which would tell me you've got more insight than a lot of other people? I'm looking at the date of his thesis, and it's not there. When, you know, on my resume, because I'm old-fashioned, I've got, you know, my bachelor's, my master's, et cetera, all of them with the date. I got the degree. They don't do that anymore because you might discriminate against somebody because of their age. So, um, okay, so I don't whatever. But I, I, I want to know the date. So that's why I told you, 1959, I go off to college, and we're all, you know, aspiring to be existentialists. <laughs> I mean, I'm stuck in Philadelphia, which is a cool city today, but was not in 1959. <laughs> what a... Pardon me, Philadelphia. What a thump. Uh, and, you know, they were working on it. Uh, there was a great city planner at Bacon, one of my teachers, who was rebuilding modern Philadelphia. But they weren't there yet. So here I am, you know, just first-year college student. I'm in a city that's got one foreign movie theater, which is tied up with a Bridget Bardot movie all the time. And I had to go home to New York I went home to Long Island, but I didn't go into New York to see the Fellini, Antonioni, Godard, uh, Bergman movies that were just hitting the scene, you know, which were the thing. So anyway, 1959, we're all aspiring to be in Paris at Les Dumagots in a black turtleneck smoking Galois, right? <laughs> that would be cool. And... Uh, so I'm trying to smoke Galois. <laughs> uh, and uh, they still had unfiltered cigarettes in those days. And I never, I couldn't, I couldn't smoke. <laughs> it didn't work. I never took. Uh, but anyway, I could still read Sartre and Camus and all that, which I did. And so to me, it's, this book's really terrific because it revisits the material I grew up on and it's uh, also very good on Martin Heidegger, who uh, went into fashion about, oh, 20 years ago. Uh, America's particularly in architecture, but in philosophy as well. Everybody was reading Martin Heidegger. And then everybody knew it uh, right after World War II, but he had been a Nazi. Uh, I mean, a real Nazi. He had joined the Nazi Party, was rector of Freiburg University and gave a speech on uh, how wonderful Hitler and Nazism were and stuff like that. And people said, well, you know, he had a bad moment, but his philosophy is still important. But people now starting to look at his philosophy and say, you know, is there something about this philosophy? Should we rethink this? So anyway, we went through that about 10, 15 years ago about Heidegger. And <clears throat> You can think about what you think of Heidegger. We'll talk a lot about it when we have Ebert on, who uh, actually reads all this stuff. <laughs> Got to tell you a little story, a little aside here. 
I did uh, a book a while back, Visionary Creativity, and I talk about it once in a while on this show. You can see it on Amazon, or if you go to visionarycreativity.com, you'll find uh, a whole website about my book. And uh, Ebert did a, we're, you know, colleagues, we do a website together, cinemadiscourse.com. And we have not been updating it recently. It was movie reviews, but there's certainly lots of terrific reviews of uh, the classic movies. And so uh, definitely recommended, and go check it out. So anyway, Ebert did a review on Amazon of my book, and then he does a bunch of books. He does, he does quite a few books on all kinds of things, but he's done a series on on um, movies, and they are titled uh, Star Wars, Scene by Scene, or Apocalypse Now, Scene by Scene. So there are five or six of these books. So he's doing the first one, and I was going to do a review of it for Amazon. So after, I don't know, a month, he says, hey, Lopel, where's my review? Because <laughs> he's done mine. And I, I haven't finished reading the book yet. <laughs> so he can write books faster than I can read them. But anyway, so he actually reads this stuff. And we'll talk to him about Heidegger. But anyway, I, so I'm reading or listening to At the Existential Cafe. Highly recommend it. And if you're not into existentialism, don't know what it's about, uh, this book will bring you up to speed about that, and you'll find out what Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, etc., were all about. And Sartre's notion is of radical freedom, that we are not defined by our gender, social roles, culture, but are ultimately free. And, of course, we're influenced by these things. And, of course, Sartre knew about circumstances. He was a prisoner of war for uh, a while during World War II. And then he and Simone de Beauvoir lived in uh, Nazi-occupied Paris. So he knew about restrictive circumstances. But he insisted that we are still have choice within our circumstances. And uh, a lot of the post-structuralist movement, say beginning with Michel Foucault, is a reaction against Sartre's point of view. Well, I'm reading this and I'm recalling what it meant to me as a you know, young college student, uh, thinking maybe I should be an existentialist, <laughs> whatever that was. <laughs> Or whatever that is or whatever, and it's, uh, you know, not very in favor anymore. But I now look back on this from a much broader point of view. And I have had the good fortune of studying somewhat other cultures. I've spent, oh, you know, maybe 30 years studying Buddhism. I was a student of Chungam Trungpa Rinpoche. And I studied with Joseph Campbell, attended all of his lectures for more than a decade, read his books, uh, uh, involved with the Joseph Campbell Foundation. And 
I, so I'm looking at other cultures. As I, as I said, I teach non-Western architecture, so I study these other cultures. My late wife, Mimi Lobel, was very strong in all the world's cultures. We, when she died, I gave 3,000 of her books to the Library of Pratt Institute, and I still have, pay a lot of money every month for a mini storage full of books, which I continually cart over to Strand, which gives me less and less money for them than they used to, uh, uh, as books uh, tend to fade out of favor. But anyway, so looking at these other points of view of what the world is and what culture is, and gives me a way to look at and see the point of view of these existentialists and post-structuralists and other Western philosophers from other points of view. So I'll, let's take a break, and when we come back, I'll try to look at the way various cultures see us and then look at our own culture and see how we see ourselves as individuals. So we'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned to PRN.FM for more empowering ideas from progressive voices. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. Hi, everybody. I am Karen Hartglass, the host of It's All About Food. Join me every Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, or catch all of my shows in the archives. You can find my archive programs at the Progressive Radio Network website or you can call my personal archive phone number to hear the most recent five episodes of It's All About Food. Here's the number, 1-701-719-0885. Here it is again, 1-701-719-0885. Learn about how we can solve many of the world's problems today and do it deliciously here on It's All About Food. This is Mike Fader. I want to tell you about my show, The Turning Point, broadcast every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern on PRN.FM. It's not just politics or pop culture or art or personal essays or storytelling. It's all of those. And it's in a spontaneous blend of stream of consciousness expression. It's not bad. Sex, children, work, beauty, ecstasy, death, regeneration. That's the turning point every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern on PRN.FM. The Progressive Radio Network is moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. Now, you don't have to come with us, but what would the neighbors say? Welcome back. I'm John LaBelle, your host. This is Visionaries on the Progressive Radio Network. You can hear us every Monday at 10 a.m. on PRN is in Nancy, dot FM is in Mary. And we're on at 10 o'clock, but who knows what time that is where you are. We're totally global, right? And you can catch our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. P-O-D-B-E-A-N is in Nancy.com. And we have some terrific past guests. We have some terrific guests coming up. So go look at uh, uh, visionaries.podbean.com, and you can see who our past guests have been 
and check out our previous shows. So I'm talking today about who we are as individuals. Well, I'm going to get to that eventually, <laughs> taking my time getting there. So one of the things uh, you see when you look at other cultures and you look at them seriously, and we're able to do that, I think, when we're through architecture, because, you know, why do people build what they build? What what are they in? We might say that architecture is the crystallization of a culture and form. I like to say that to my students. So <clears throat> if we look at the Eurasian continent, so we divide that into Europe and Asia politically, but it's all one huge piece of uh, landmass. And if we also include the Middle East, which looks like it's very much a part of it, we can see some very different attitudes toward what we are as human beings. You know, we might start with the Middle East, and we see in the Middle East this notion of the world is created by a creator. And we see that in the ancient Mesopotamian cultures, but particularly we see it in the biblical cultures, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, there's a creator. And so what are we doing here? What are we supposed to be doing? And that's pretty easy. The creator left instructions <laughs> for the Mesopotamians in the patterns in the sky, for the biblical traditions in a set of books. And so what we're supposed to do is conform to the instructions of the creator. And so the key idea is submission, submission to these patterns that have been laid out for us. And there are different ways that <clears throat> this submission is interpreted. But if you look at Eastern Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you see this notion of conforming to the instructions is very central to it. And the, um, you know, we might say, well, you know, we look at the Bible and we see it metaphorically and then we interpret it for our times. And maybe there are archetypal messages in there that we might know. Uh, the, you know, the uh, orthodox versions of these traditions say these are concrete. You don't interpret them. <laughs> the, well, you, you know, you can interpret them, but you don't change them. You don't select them. You don't say, uh, well, this makes sense, and this is really meant as a metaphor. No, these are instructions. And if we um, take as an example of that, we can say that these cultures sort of embed themselves in their literature. So think of the story of Job and the way Joseph Campbell likes to tell the tale. God and the Satan are in a bar and having a chat, and God says to Satan, behold my subject, Job. Look at how he worships me. And Satan says, yeah, sure, of course he worships you. Look at all the riches you've given him. Take that away and see what, what happens. And God says, you know what, you're on. Go ahead. So Satan is given permission to uh, destroy Job's home, uh, kills his family, destroys his crops and animals, and Job keeps, you know, keeping his faith with God. And so he destroys Job's health, and eventually, the worst of all, the um, 
stature with other people. He's saying, all, his community says to him, all these bad things have happened. You must have really crossed God. He says, no, I didn't do anything. So eventually God appears before Job and says, um, look at all I've done to you. And Job says, I bow down before you. Uh, you know, a modern person might be tempted to say, you sicko. <laughs> what was that about? And so now contrast that to Greece. So in Greece, we see the emergence of the individual human being, but different from the way it is in the West, subject to faith. And we might take our key character as Prometheus. So Prometheus is a titan, but maybe we could say he stands in for human beings. And remember, what did Prometheus do? It got him in trouble. He stole fire from the gods, but not only fire, but the arts and sciences. And the reason why this is really bad is that this will give human beings the power to eventually supplant the gods. And so Zeus says, you idiot. <laughs> what, what was that? What are you thinking? So he punishes Prometheus by chaining him to a rock, and an eagle comes every day and eats out his liver and every night his liver regrows. And delegations of gods comes to Prometheus and says, so, you know, uh, uh, God, Zeus was just in a bad mood that day. Uh, if you just apologize, you didn't have to mean it, but if you apologize, he'll let you go. And Prometheus says, you go tell Zeus I spit in his face. So, and we have Aeschylus' Prometheus bound. We don't have his Prometheus unbound, unfortunately, but we do have Gide's version of the story. And in Gide's version, uh, Hercules is traipsing through the hills, and he gets buzzed by an eagle, and he kills the eagle with his club. He's dragging this giant dead eagle with him, and he comes across Prometheus. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, was that your eagle? Prometheus <laughs> says, that's okay. So uh, Hercules eventually frees Prometheus. But Prometheus riles at his fate, but there's nothing he can do about it. And then we think, you know, what about Western people? And we think maybe of the story of Percival. And Percival is one of the knights of King Arthur's Round Table, and Percival has an interesting backstory. He, uh, his mother, uh, was a lover of one of King Arthur's knights, and she gets pregnant with Percival, and then her lover dies in combat, and so now she's a single mom, and she doesn't want Percival to become a knight. She doesn't lose her son, the way she also lost her lover, and so she keeps secret from him all knowledge of knighthood. But one day, Percival, little boys, out in the woods, and these knights come charging through the woods on their great steeds with their shining arbor, their plumes flowing in the wind. And he runs home to his mother and he says, I'm going to become a knight. <laughs> I'm going to get one of those. So she's heartbroken, dresses him in burlap, puts him on a donkey, hoping he'll be laughed out of King Arthur's court, sends him off, dies of a broken heart. And he becomes a formidable knight because he's pure of heart. And he always acts spontaneously out of his own nature rather than uh, 
immorally, <laughs> as we remember what Lancelot's doing with Guinevere, or, you know, by the rules. He acts spontaneously out of his own nature. And one day, he comes to the Fisher King's castle, and the Fisher King has been wounded in the groin, and the wound will not heal, and the land is a wasteland. If the king is ill, then the, the land will be ill. And the uh, Percival enters the castle, and they bring the king down on a stretcher, and he is moved to say, what ails you? That's his spontaneous. But then he recalls, for the first time, he remembers the rules, and the rule is, you do not speak to a king until he speaks to you first. And so he doesn't say anything, and he has failed the quest because he has not acted spontaneously the way he should. And he's turned away, and later, in love with Condweer, her name-evoking guide, he returns to the castle, spontaneously utters what ails you, heals the king, and heals the kingdom. Now, this is important. We're going to see as we go along on the rest of today's show. But uh, so now we have a notion that the moral center, the moral compass is in the heart of each individual. And so that's the Western idea. And there are two others we should be aware of because they influence us to this day. And that is in India, we have the notion that this world is an illusion. And the really important world is this transcendent oneness that stands behind this illusory world. And your real identity is to bring yourself in touch with this transcendent oneness, at which point you disappear because you remerge with this transcendent oneness. And we see that in the story of Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the books of the Mahabharata, tells the story of Arjuna, who's a prince who refuses at first to fight because he says he's supposed to retrieve his usurped kingdom. He says, why should all that? I see on both sides of the, both of these armies, mentors, friends, great warriors, why should they die over my petty desire for a throne? And his charioteer, who is um, the god Shiva in disguise, rears up and says, who do you think you are? These men are already dead. Um, this, your duty is to do your duty as a warrior and fight. But in transcendence, you will achieve something else. And then instructs him on meditation and on nirvana. And then finally in China, we have the notion of the Tao, the flow of all things. And we should put ourselves in accord with the flow of all things, and in particular, the flow of nature. And rather than fighting nature, we want to be in accord with it and in flow with it. So one of the things we'll notice in nature <laughs> is that we get old and die. And uh, if you've been reading the newspapers recently, uh, they're working on that. <laughs> uh, in fact, I'm director of research for a project called Timeship. You'll find us at Timeship, 
like spaceship at timeship.org. I'm director of research for the project. And we're, we're building a facility, a research facility, to find the causes of aging and turn it off. <laughs> Talk about hubris. These Westerners don't accept fate the way the Greeks did. But anyway, so think about this background and then who and what we are as people. And the point is, it's different in these different cultures. And in the West, we have this notion that um, we emerge as individuals. And if we think about, uh, I like to say, architecture is a manifestation and form of the worldview of a culture. So each culture builds its temple form. And a temple form sort of depicts the space in which we move, the metaphysical as well as physical space. And so in these Eastern uh, or in these Middle Eastern traditions, there's the great dome, the dome of heaven. And we're in this confined, limited world. Realize that these, particularly the biblical traditions of the Middle East, are in this narrow, confined little world, unlike, say, India and China, which had vast trading networks extending over two continents. And in the West, there's this more expansive point of view. So the temple form of the West is the Gothic cathedral. And you stand in the nave of a Gothic cathedral and look up. And if you don't have, if you haven't been in Europe recently, uh, you can go to St. Patrick's on 5th Avenue and 50th Street. And it's smaller than the great Gothic cathedrals. We get the feeling there. Or if you make it uptown to St. John the Divine on 110th Street and Cathedral Avenue, and you go in there, it's one of the larger cathedrals in the world, and you look up at these soaring vaults, and you realize it's the descendants of the people who built this thing are going to circle the globe and go out into space. In other words, it was all there at the very beginning. Oswald Spengler, in describing the prime symbol of Western culture, says that this prime symbol is the conquest of space and time. These are the people that are going to circle the globe. And so we look at the way Western Europe has conquered, decimated, and colonized the world. Um, and, well, why, why was it Europe that did that and not India, not China? They said, well, you know, the Europeans had these technologies. Well, they didn't. If we look at China in the 1400s, Admiral Z built this great fleet of giant ships, football-sized ships, 15 times the tonnage of Columbus's ships, each one triple-hulled with nine masts. They had farms and farm animals. He built expeditions of dozens of these ships and hundreds hundreds of lesser ships with crews of 28,000 people for all these ships going all around the globe. Emperor found out about it and burned all the ships, destroyed the records of the voyages, because China does not, did not think of itself symbolically as outward going. The West did. And so it wasn't due to a superior technology that the West conquered the globe, but to this aggressive, outgoing 
cultural psychology that the West had. And then this notion of the moral voice being in the heart of each individual, which we see in that Arthurian romance. In The Quest for the Holy Grail, one of the romances, the knights are gathered at the round table about to eat supper, and the grail, the grail is the thing they're looking for. <laughs> they never say what it is. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be maybe the chalice from which Christ drunk wine at the Last Supper, but they never really say what it is. It's the enlightenment that they're looking for. And the grail appears veiled uh, before the knights at the round table. One of the knights says, I propose that we take a vow to go on a quest to see the grail unveiled before we eat this supper. And they all agree. And then they thought it would be a disgrace to go forth in a group. So each entered the forest at a point he himself chose where it was darkest and there was no path or way. Because if there's a path, it's where someone else went. It's somebody else's path. And so there's this demand of originality we have for ourselves in our Western culture that each of us must find our own way. And think now again about Sartre's existential demand that we take responsibility for our freedom. So I spent many years with a monk, Lobsang, common name in Tibet, but you might know Lobsang. And we had a study group. We met every Sunday to meditate and study Tibetan scriptures. And uh, my late wife, Mimi, did a studio at Pratt Institute of a Tibetan Cultural Center for New York. So her students, uh, 12 students, each of them did their own design for a Tibetan Cultural Study Center in New York. And so that was the project. And later, uh, Lobsang arranged for her to be able to present a portfolio of these projects to the Dalai Lama. So it was a great honor for her. And for the review, the final review of the project, that, you know, all the reviews are going on in school and that people are gathered everywhere. And a review has a whole bunch of guests. Guest architects come from the city and are participating in these reviews. And so Lobsang was going to come to our review, and he brought two buddies. <laughs> They're all in their monk's robes. So I drove them from Manhattan out to Brooklyn, where Pratt is, and they come into the school. They're flowing saffron and red monk's robes, and, you know, the school's all abuzz. What's going on? And they came to her review, and they sort of mumbled, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, about the various projects. And then I was driving them back to New York, and Lobsang's very confused. Now, Lobsang was a great sand painter. He had been a secretary to the Dalai Lama and a great sand painter. And we arranged for him to do some sand paintings. He had done a sand painting at the Museum of Natural History. That's how I, uh, we first met him. And these sand paintings, they don't wing it. They're very prescribed. If you're going to do a particular sand painting, there's a handbook that describes what that painting is, how it's done, and they would work according to these prescriptions. They don't wing it. <laughs> so I'm driving him back, and he's very confused, and he says, each student does their own project? <laughs> 
So that's how, you know, you learn about other cultures. And one other, this had an Islamic student a while back. This would not happen today. But I had this Islamic student, and there's a tradition there, uh, which you'll get in a moment. And so we said, uh, next week, chapter four. <laughs> so next week he comes in and he says, that was a lot to memorize. <laughs> so no, you just sort of peruse it, you know. You don't have to memorize it. Different culture. Well, that, that wouldn't happen today, but it did happen uh, because of the different approaches of these cultures to this material. So now, what is the significance of this? And I told you the story of Percival, how he acted spontaneously out of his own inner, his own inner sense, his own inner moral compass. And then we thought about um, uh, what might that mean for us today? So I think we're going to continue this uh, discussion in our next show um, in a week. But, you know, uh, we'll go a little further and then we've developed some more because we sort of see the whole thing unfold. Because then we ask, so what's America's favorite novel, right? The three great novels are Moby Dick, which is <laughs> kind of hard to read. It's really long. And then there's um, Fitzgerald. What's the book? Not this side of Paris. What's Fitzgerald's great novel? The Great Gatsby. Sorry about that. And very brief novel, really beautiful. The, the movies just can't capture it. It's not, it's not a novel that can be made into a movie. You just read it. And, uh, you know, see, it's, you should reread it every five years, Right. It's very brief. You can read it quite quickly. And just the, you know, when Daisy's on the divan and the breeze is coming in and it's blowing the curtains, there's a way that's captured in writing that just is not captured in a movie. But anyway, there's uh, uh, the other one, the third contender, is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. And so Huck is on a raft on the Mississippi, rootless Americans seeking an identity. And then they encounter all the weirdos of the American psyche, right? The king, the duke, the just one town after another. They find these strange, bizarre American people in their, you know, the con men, the strivers, aspires, and Huck is helping Jim, an escaped slave, escape. And on top of escaping, it's bad enough crime in itself, Jim is going to attempt to steal back his wife and child. Oh, my God, terrible stuff. And so Huck is tormented. Am I doing the right thing? Should I, I shouldn't be doing this. He has been told by the preacher, by the law, by Miss Polly, by Miss Watson, that what a crime it is to steal a slave. He's stealing Miss Watson's property. What'd she ever do to him? And then finally he says, um, I'm going to do it anyway. And then he says, all right then, I'll go to hell. It was awful thoughts and awful words, but they were said. So, of course, we know that Huck's inner moral voice is a superior moral guide than the rules of society in this case. So 
the, um, you know, that's why we admire that novel. And then uh, Hemingway said something very telling, and we have a, um, you know, you know, it, it, you hear these things, and Hemingway says all of American literature begins with uh, Huckleberry Finn. Okay, you know, you can say that kind of thing. And, but then you begin to realize what that means. And we have this great, this great lines from um, the, the great mystery writer, Two great mystery writers are uh, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. And there's this uh, line, there's this essay by Raymond Chandler called The Simple Art of Murder. And in it, he's got the line, I'm just looking for my notes here, see if I have it. If not, I'm going to wing it. Hang on. See if we have it here. We don't have it here, so I'm going to wing it. So it's the essay, The Simple Art of Murder, by Raymond Chandler, and it says, Down these mean streets a man must go, a man who is not himself mean, a rustic man, an ordinary man, but at the same time an extraordinary man. And that's the detective. So we then see what Hemingway meant. Every detective story, and then dozens and dozens and dozens of movies are about how society has it not quite right. You know, the police are after the wrong bad guy. And then the detective, um, 007, uh, Matt Damon as uh, Bourne, uh, Angelina Jolie as Salt, on and on and on. Uh, the they, they said, no, that's not the right solution. That's not the right way. And then they bust out of the, you know, the trap, the jail, the the society to uh, apprehend the correct bad guy uh, to come to the right solution. Think of Dustin Hoffman as the doctor in, what is it, Contagion, uh, the movie in which uh, it's one of the movies. There's a plague, and there's one person who's uh, uh, breaking the rules, <laughs> and they solve it. And you would not get that. That's not Chinese literature. That's not Indian literature. That's not Middle Eastern literature. That's not Greek literature that you only get that in the West. This notion of the individual acting out of their own spontaneous inner nature to um, do what they think is right. Hopefully they're right. <laughs> Who knows? Sometimes they could maybe get it wrong. But in literature, they always get it right. In all these movies, they always get it right. And so... We think about this creation of this individual figure who then um, bursts out into the world with this unique point of view. We'll maybe talk about this more next week, but think of these 
incredibly powerful movies. These movies are so powerful, I don't rewatch them. Gattaca, The Truman Show, and then Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. What a movie. It's banned in England, and I can't even watch it anymore. Um, I mean, you know, I got to know what it's about. Uh, it's this really powerful statement of the uh, power of the individual human being. But, you know, it's just, um, it just throws you for a loop to uh, go through that. Oh, I found my notes, so let's look at it again. Down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor. So that's The Simple Art of Murder by Raymond Chandler, who gave us, you know, The Big Sleep and uh, all those, all those uh, mystery novels. And then a thousand movies in which the protagonist acts with integrity out of inner authenticity, bringing down a corrupt world and for a time setting things right. So then that's, you know, the American movie. And it comes from this notion of who and what we are as human beings, which we see sort of built from this medieval notion in the Arthurian romances. So maybe next, uh, next week we'll go into how you build that human beings, which is what our art and literature is about. So my colleagues who teach literature, um, you know, are more into the literature. I'm more into the art. So we'll be able to talk about how you put together one of these human beings and we see the culture actually building it. So I began the show today with talking about this terrific book that I'm in the middle of, uh, At the Existential Cafe, Freedom, Being, and Apricot Cocktails with Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Albert Camus, Martin Heidegger, and Maurice Merleau-Ponty and others. And <laughs> the Apricot Cocktail got in there <laughs> because she begins with a scene in which... Um, um, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir are in a cafe with a colleague who's just come back from Germany and had been studying with Martin Heidegger, who sort of is the origin of the whole thing, and brings back this, uh, or maybe it was Husserl. Husserl was initially Heidegger's teacher, and brings back this talk of phenomenology. And phenomenology is... Uh, Returning to the things themselves, in other words, bringing philosophy away from abstract theorizing and looking at what's actually in front of us, how it presents itself to us. And their colleague says to Sartre and to Simone de Beauvoir, uh, you could philosophize about these apricot cocktails that we're drinking right now. <laughs> and that opens up an entire world for uh for Jean-Paul Sartre. So uh, let's wrap up, and uh, we'll continue on this theme uh, next week. Come back next week at whatever time it is for you in your part of the world. This is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries on Progressive Radio Network. Oh.